morning, church. If you would, please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there are some in the pew rack in front of you. And we will be on page 1029, on page 1029, clear at the, at the back of the Bible at the end of the New Testament. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would have an ear this morning to what your word is saying to us. We pray that you would be with Pastor Toby as he comes and brings the word to us. And Father, when we leave here today, we pray that we will be applying what we learn today in our lives and that we will live our lives in a way that glorifies you because you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning, everyone, and uh, we've sung together, but I've not said good morning to you. Um, it is good to sing together, and it's good to be encouraged and to encourage one another as we do sing. Uh, before we dive in here, I just, I know all of you know, if you've been keeping track, the fundraiser for our Guatemala mission trip is this Wednesday night. And it's in this room and in the, the foyer. You may wonder what, what is going to happen. Well, in part, the, the Sunday morning band and the youth band and some of the singers for the youth are going to come together and we're going to do some praise together. Uh, we're going to break for some desserts that uh, um, some of the elders and deacons' wives are preparing for uh, that, uh, that night. If, you, that, if you're an elder or deacon's wife and that makes you tremble a little bit, it's probably just because you haven't gotten a call and it's okay. Uh, so don't freak out. Um, but then we'll come back in and actually we're going to do something that we do every November. Our praise team gets together in my living room and we eat dinner together and then we just say, hey, what song do you want to sing? Hey, so what song do you want to sing? And we just play and we sing and it's just a night like that. And so you're going to have an opportunity just to choose some songs uh, that we're just going to sing together. We're just going to praise together. 
But it, it becomes a fundraiser in two, in three particular ways. First of all, uh, during our break for dessert, which will be in the middle of the night, not the middle of the night, but the middle of our time together, uh, there will be uh, some silent auction items out in the foyer, particularly the teens and the group that is going to Guatemala is offering themselves up to do various kinds of work that you can bid on, uh, whether in your yard, in your house, you know, that drain that you finally want unclogged, uh, maybe they can do it. If not, they can, it'll at least be fun watching. So uh, the second way it's a fundraiser is that at the end of the night, we are going to have a table. Uh, Leah has, is, has agreed to bring like eight to 10 of her delicious uh, concoctions, which include pies and pastries and donuts. I'm not telling her what to do here. I'm just telling her that if she were to bring lemon blueberry donuts, they might go for a high cost. Uh, but she's going to bring some baked goods and we're just gonna have a good old traditional auction uh, where you call it out. So bring uh, uh, money to be able to do that. And if you don't win a silent auction and you don't win a pie or some kind of pastry or treat, uh, we will still let you give to help the Guatemala mission trip. We are going to work alongside Randy and Brenda uh, to do some uh, work in their feeding centers with the kids. And uh, um, I will have the opportunity to teach at a pastor's breakfast, probably the same pastors that I did the biblical counseling training with last year, as well as uh, to preach while I'm there. So it's going to be a great trip. I would encourage you to come this Wednesday night. There are no regular growth groups, though the elementary program will still happen, the preschool. Uh, but preschool, Chad? Preschool Wednesday night? Is that normal? Okay. Uh, normal uh, preschool time as well. But... Um, but all of us growth groups and everybody who's not even in a growth group, just come here, we're gonna sing, we'll enjoy dessert. It's gonna be, be a fun night and an opportunity for us to give, so I hope that you'll come. Uh, about a month ago, we had a pastor's lunch here for all the pastors that participate in the Good Friday service. And as pastors tend to do, those who, who are concerned about preaching the Bible, oftentimes when we get together, we say, what are you preaching? And so someone asked me, what am I preaching? And I said, well, we're working our way through uh, the first three chapters of Revelation in an abbreviated series focusing on the letters. And uh, he gave me a hard time. He said, well, so you're sticking with the easy stuff, are you? And, uh, and I laughed and I told him, I thought we were just asking about what we're preaching, not giving one another a hard time about it. But uh, I've thought actually about his comments since then, and I'm not so sure this is the easy part. There are certainly more difficult matters of interpretation in other places. But when it comes to the application of God's Word to our lives, these letters speak some of the strongest words that you will find. You've lost your first love. You're compromising. You're tolerating it. And then today, you're on death's door. That's where Sardis is. We come in this series of letters to Sardis. It was a city that was once quite wealthy and powerful within the Roman Empire, but not anymore. One commentator describes it as a city which lived on its ancient prestige rather than its suitability for present conditions. It's kind of like many small cities in the Midwest. You know, there was once a thriving factory there. 
and everything was booming and growing and the economy was great, but then the factory shut down and things began to go downhill. But even still to this day, you'll find people in diners drinking their coffee, surrounded by poverty, surrounded by the crime of those kinds of towns, talking about how things used to be, about some bygone golden era. Well, the problem in Sardis isn't a closed factory in Jesus' mind. It's not actually the fact that it's declining in its power or influence. The problem in Sardis is a dying church. It's deceptively dying, as we shall see. And Jesus' words to Sardis are needed in our days. The fact is there are so many churches that look good to the world, but are decaying on the inside. And so as we look at this letter, we will take away that every dying church must find new life or face its death. That's what I find to be the main thread of this letter. Every church, every dying church must find new life or face its death. Well, let's look at it first by thinking about the dying church's reputation. Jesus says it right away in verse 1. You have the reputation of being alive. So let's say your family moves to the Sardis area, the greater Sardis area, and you stop at McDonald's because of all the restaurants in the world. That chain will never die no matter how impoverished a community is. People still want their Egg McMuffins and their Big Macs. And you stop at the McDonald's in the Sardis area and you ask someone inside... So what's a good church we could go to? Oh, you want to head over to First Baptist Sardis. That place is happening. Everybody in town knows about them. There's real life there. That sounds like a decent recommendation, doesn't it? I'm not sure I know a a local pastor or any church that would snub their nose at being known as a good church, as a living church in its community. The fact is, in our day, a church may gain such a good reputation for any number of reasons. My family and I were in Memphis just a couple of weeks ago, and we drove by a large church building, and in the yard outside the church building was a sign declaring that they were were living out, quote, a different way to be Baptist. Now, that makes flags go up in my mind. I don't know what that means, so I looked it up. I went to their website, and basically what it means is it was declaring their Openness to any faith tradition, any theology, any lifestyle is, can just all come together and hold hands and be happy. That, that in the name of tolerance, all these are welcome. And in the truth is, is that in many communities, in our own city, this kind of church would have a good reputation. That church might have a good reputation because there are lots of young people both married and single, and the nursery is booming. Well, we can boast that one more has been added to ours this week as Violet has arrived, so we thank the Lord for that. A church could be thought of as as alive because the attendance is growing and the budget is growing and the calendar's filled with programs and events. It has a radio ministry. It has a TV ministry. It has a strong social media presence. 
This church is actively doing things in the community, you know. They're partnering with local charities. They have a food pantry. They have a clothes closet. They're working against human trafficking. They have a popular school ministry that everybody seems to know about on the south side of Sardis. The corporate church worship service has the right vibe. The lively music, the lifted hands, the right lighting. It's just what I'm looking for. Just light enough to find my seat and just dark enough to get out before anybody sees. Well, and then there are the really spiritual folks who say that, well, a church is alive solely because it has the right doctrine. Because there's expositional preaching there. Because, or because they're not like those other churches. Now, not everything that makes for a good reputation in the community is bad in the church. We have to recognize that. But what is bad is when a church begins to take pride in such a reputation. Sardis, as a city, was quite proud of itself. It was built 1,500 uh, uh, feet high above the valley below, almost, per almost perpendicular rock walls on every side of this large area on uh, the top. I, we have a picture. I, I captured a picture. You see that? You don't see every rock wall, but on the, as you go around, and you just see one little trail coming up. And, this, and Sardis was very proud of this. There were no full frontal assaults by enemies at a city like this. And so they got rather proud and they didn't pay so much attention because nobody can come attack us. And yet twice in their history, they weren't beaten by full attacks, they were beaten by stealth. Somebody, maybe a small group, coming up that little path or coming up some other little path and just scaling. In fact, there's a story of scaling rock walls to come up and attack Sardis and they were destroyed and not only that, 75 years before this letter was written, there was an earthquake that decimated the place. They were still in a rebuilding year, rebuilding decades, really. And maybe that's what happened to the church in Sardis, too. It wasn't the full frontal assault of false teachers that got them. It was the stealthy work of the devil in making them satisfied with a good reputation in the community. With their, their pastor being asked to pray at the city council meeting. With the fact that a, a, the local news did a story on all the good that they're doing in the city. This is what happens when a church thinks it's okay because the community thinks it's okay. But the devil had snuck in, you see. And it doesn't just happen to churches, does it? It happens to individual Christians. A, church may, a Christian may have a great reputation in the workplace as a very moral and ethical person. A, church may, a, a Christian may have a good reputation within their family as, yeah, that's the one who doesn't X, Y, Z. A Christian may have a good reputation with her friends. Don't ask her. She's not going to be interested in that kind of thing. Or if you want somebody to pray for the meal, just ask her. She's the one that goes to church. 
A Christian may have a good reputation in the community. A Christian may even have a good reputation in the church, right? I mean, that, well, that guy's a pastor. That guy's an elder. That guy's a deacon. That, that lady's a Sunday school teacher. She's, she's been there since before that building was even there. Long-time church member. And if one is not careful, one can take pride in such a reputation, believing that as long as everyone around me thinks I'm a vibrant Christian, I must be. This is dangerous thinking. This is Sardian-type thinking. 1 Corinthians 10 warns us, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. So the church's reputation was quite good. But secondly, we have to think about the dying church's reality. It's not just the reputation in the community that matters, you see. Jesus peels back that layer and says, well, that's nice and that's good and all, but let me peel this back. Now, I want you to imagine that you are in the congregation in Sardis, and this letter is being read, right? So the person stands up. First time you've ever heard it, and you hear, I know your works. Now, as these were sent, they were sent in bundle form. So you've heard good things about every church before now. You're like, oh, well, good, Ephesus, good, good, good. And now, I know your works and your chest puffs out. Your chin raises up. You have a reputation of being alive. That's right, that's right, we do. That's right, you know what's coming next. He's just going to bless us. He's going to tell us everything that's great about us. He's going to say what we've been reading in headlines for years. But no, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. But you are dead. I mean, and as those words sink into your heart, as you're sitting there listening... To this, the words sink into your heart and your heart sinks. How can this be? A couple of years ago, a movie came out called The Greatest Showman. It's a fictional, it's not all true, but it is this biopic movie about P.T. Barnum and, and how that circus got started, his rise to fame and uh, he starts out, before he gets all the crazy acts, he, he, he starts a wax museum. But nobody's interested in the wax museum. And he's sitting at night and things aren't going well and he's talking to his daughter who's laying in bed and she gives her idea as to why things aren't going so well. She says, I think you have too many dead things in your museum, Daddy. You need something alive. And you see, what Jesus is saying to the church at Sardis is, you're a wax museum. Everything seems quite lifelike in there. It's just not life. And he actually says a couple of things about this. He says, first, that their works are not complete. That's what he says in verse 2 at the end. I have found your works. I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. 
This is the problem with their works. Not that they, their works are absent. I mean, there are works. Their works are good enough for a good reputation in town. They're just not what Jesus is looking for. They're incomplete. They're not full. They're not wholehearted. The problem, see, isn't so much the quantity of the works as it is the quality of the works. And this is a common problem in the Scriptures, isn't it? Empty external activity. People teaching Sunday school heartless. People attending the worship of God and only interested as to when it will be done so I can get on with my life. I had a story about a friend of mine. He was the pastor of the Presbyterian Church down the road when we were living in Nashville. And he and I would get together often and, and uh, drink coffee and talk about ministry and, and all kinds of things. And uh, His name was Chuck, finally. It came to my mind. I couldn't remember for the longest time. His name is Chuck. And uh, Chuck was telling me over one of these times in coffee that he was three weeks into his pastorate there. Three weeks, third week, fourth week, something like that. And he's preaching. And uh, all three weeks, he had kind of leaked over the 12 o'clock time. And by the third week, the woman in the back of the auditorium had had enough. So she's sitting about where Dave Smith is there. And she stands up, steps out into the aisle when it's like a minute to 12 and starts tapping her wrist. (laughs) Empty external activity. These people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Or in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells His disciples that there is a type of praying and a type of fasting and a type of giving that will be rewarded by people around you. They will be so impressed at how you can fast and give and pray. And then Jesus says some of the scariest words in the Bible, which is, that's your reward. The applause of men is it. Because it's heartless and it's done so that people will see it. And it's empty. Half-hearted works are incomplete in God's sight, no matter how Great they look to others. I wonder how you serve the Lord. You may be quite busy. You may have no room in your calendar because you are doing so many things in church ministry. But is your heart in it? If not, it's incomplete. It's incomplete. 
Now, there's also good news about this dying church's reality, and that is this. Not only are their works not complete, their death is not complete. That's good news. Jesus didn't come with a shovel to bury him. Came to stir them up. Their death isn't complete. The heart of the church hasn't completely stopped beating. Look at verse 4. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The church is dying, but it isn't dead yet. There are some who haven't soiled their garments. They are walking in holiness. They are serving wholeheartedly rather than hypocritically. They're worthy, Jesus says. You know, Ephesians 4, 1 says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And these folks in Sardis are doing just that. They are walking in a manner worthy. And they will certainly be rewarded for it. That's the good news for any dying church. So long as there is a remnant of faithful brothers and sisters, there is hope for the return of life. I talked on the phone about six months ago with a man who's a deacon in his congregation here locally. And I know his pastor, good friends with his pastor, have talked with his pastor, seek to encourage his pastor. And this deacon came to me and basically was just saying, I don't know how much longer I can take it. I more and more see where we are unfaithful, where we need to grow, where we need to change, but, but nobody around me and the pastor and a small group of people in the church is seeing it yet. And he had visited this church one day. And he called me the week after. I don't know if he was looking for permission, but I just looked at him and I said, Here, here's the thing. If everybody like you leaves that church, what hope is there? If everybody who's praying, everybody who wants to be faithful, everybody who's doing what is right leaves your church, where does that leave the church? I told him just like I told the pastor. You have to keep on it. You have to keep going. It could get uglier before it gets prettier. But even if it doesn't get prettier in this life, if you're faithful to Jesus, in the words of Revelation 3, you're going to walk in white garments. And so I told him, keep on. I told him what I tell all of you. Stay steady. Keep it up. Don't throw in the towel. Eric Alexander was, uh, is a retired minister in the Church of Scotland. And at one point he was uh, given the assignment to go and serve in a very rural church in Scotland. It was a dying rural church. There hadn't been faithful ministry of the word from the pulpit or from the pastor in decades. And he was sent there and he's a very godly and faithful man. You would benefit just by going and finding his preaching and listening to it. Not just for the accent, I mean for the content as well. And so he goes in and he's visiting the congregation and he visits in the home of a 90-year-old man. And this 90-year-old man at some point with great sobriety leans forward and looks into Eric's eyes and says, I have been praying for a man like you to come to this church for 40 years. And the Lord answered his prayer and actually brought new life to the church through it. 
You see, so long as there are faithful, vibrant Christians in a congregation, there is still hope. Hope for life. Life the way Jesus sees life. Not life the way the community sees life. Not life the way certain pundits describe what living churches look like. But life. I go into that place, it's alive. I don't know what else they're doing. But the Spirit's at work. Matthew chapter 12, verse 20, uh, Jesus is spoken of, and it says of Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. That is true of us as individual believers, and apparently from Revelation 3, it is true of churches that are smoldering. He hasn't come with a shovel to bury them. He's come with his call to help them. Or else the shovel will come. That's actually uh, part of what we see. The third thing, we see the church, dying church's reputation, the dying church's uh, uh, reality, and then thirdly, the dying church's resurrection. How can this dying church come back to life? How will that happen? Well... A few things. The church must seek new life. The church must seek new life. And we see that because Jesus commands them to do certain things. Five things, actually. Beginning in verse 2. Wake up. <laughs> A good reputation in town had become like tryptophan in Thanksgiving turkey. It had just completely put them to sleep. And Jesus is saying you need to wake up. You need to watch out. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, and they haven't been watchful. That's what Jesus is saying. So the devil has crept in, and he's picked them off one by one. He's been seeking, he's been devouring, and the only way to end the carnage is they must begin to pay attention. Or else. Secondly, they need, I mean, also, uh, another thing they must do is to strengthen what remains. That's the next phrase. Wake up and strengthen what remains. There's still time. They haven't flatlined yet. There's still a spark that can be fanned into a flame, but they must strengthen what is good and right. They must fight for their life while there's life to fight for. They also must remember... Verse 3, remember then what you received and heard. Received and heard, remembering is a way that the Scripture often talks and refers to the gospel. So, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that he is, wants to remind them of what they have received. And he goes into the gospel itself, that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And this church at Sardis and any dying church needs to remember the Gospel. They must remember actually for the same reason we must remember. I said it just a while ago because we have short-term memory problems. Because we can be deceived into thinking that as long as people think we're godly, I mean, God must have the same opinion. As long as people approve of us, God must as well. But that's just simply not true. 
The, the, the gospel teaches us that God only thinks well of us because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to us. It is not in me, but only you. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by Him, and He alone can give me rest. Remember the gospel. Do you know that in dying churches, this is one of the things that goes out the door with people who are exiting, is the gospel. Because all of a sudden, we need to amend it somehow. We need to change it somehow. We need to reflavor it somehow so it doesn't taste like the gospel. But we can use words that are normally in the gospel, but we're going to use them for something else. That's not what God wants. You've got to remember the recipe. You've got to remember the gospel. Do not lose hold of it. And he says, keep it. Right after that, keep it. Keep it. Guard the gospel. Hold on to the gospel. Live your life in light of the gospel. This will lead to good works, but a different kind of good works. Maybe not even in what they look like externally, but what they actually are, that they bubble out of a heart that's been transformed and wants to please the Lord, rather than looking around at the opinion of man and wanting to please the community. It will be obedience from the heart. And then the last word is repent. This sums up the whole list, doesn't it? Everything about how they're thinking needs to be revolutionized. So stop thinking you're impenetrable and wake up to the reality of the devil's opposition. Stop seeing yourselves as so strong and realize that you're weak and you need to strengthen what remains. Stop thinking the acceptance of men equals the acceptance of God and remember the gospel. And stop the empty, formal, lifeless works. Keep the Word of God. Keep the gospel fully. Obey fully, not for the sake of your reputation in the community, but for the sake of God and His glory to please Him. The church must seek new life. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Remember. Keep it. Repent. To bring a much finer point to it, next is that the church must look to Jesus for life. Yes, they must seek new life, but they must look to Jesus for new life. L listen to how this letter begins. The words of Him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. In other words, seek Him because of what's in His hand. Seven spirits communicates fullness. It happened in chapter 1, speaking of the Spirit of God. The fullness of the Spirit of God, the Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, can raise the church from the dead. The seven stars, these are the angels, remember, of the church. These are those men that we understand to be the elders, what would be elders in the church, those who are charged with bringing the Word of God to the church, because through the Word of God, life comes. 1 Peter 1, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. The Word and the Spirit. 
in Jesus' hand. It's mindful of Ezekiel 37, isn't it? God gives Ezekiel this vision of a valley of dry bones. There's a femur over here. Shoulder, you know, shoulder blade over here. Rib cages and skeletons everywhere. And Ezekiel looks at it. And he says, and God asks him, So, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, Only you know. And then as the scene unfolds, two things come together to turn this pile of bones into an army. The Word and the Spirit. The Word of God through God's messenger, Ezekiel, and the breath of God, the Spirit of God, giving life to the reconstructed bodies. And here in Revelation 3, Jesus holds the fullness of the Spirit and every messenger of His in His hands. The church surely must respond in repentance, but Jesus is the only one who gives life. The church can't make it happen. We can't work it up. We can't start a, you know, a special strategy group and are at the end of the day, we're going to have brought life back to the church. No, 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 no. Of course we must think about what will it mean for us to wake up, to strengthen, to repent, to remember, to keep it. And everything else the Scripture teaches us to do. But we are foolish to think that we can walk into any valley of dry bones and say, I got this. That's foolishness. It's like walking down the Forest Hill Cemetery, right? And you just go in and you say, all right, everybody up. If you walk down there, if you go to any cemetery and that's what you see, some guy out in the middle of it saying, hey, everybody get up you're going to call the people with the white coats to come and to put the jacket and say, you've been a very nice person. We're going to make sure you don't hurt anybody for now. You may be very kind. You may be very well-intentioned. But uh, what are you saying? And yet, do you know that's exactly what we do when we share the gospel with our friend? We are those fools who stand next to the grave of the person drinking coffee across the table from us, and we say, Jesus died and rose again, so get up. But the Spirit gives life. The flesh is of no avail. God calls us to be faithful in proclaiming the good news about Jesus Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection. And it is through those faithful means that He brings fruitfulness. But we cannot make it happen on our own. The same is actually true for the Christian who's actually feeling quite lethargic. You hear Sardis and you feel like it's more like a mirror than a window that you're looking through. This isn't like a New Year's resolution. You're going to walk out, you're saying, all right, I'm alive now. You can't make yourself alive. I cannot cause my soul to live. What can you do? Seek to wake up. Strengthen what remains. Remember the gospel. 
Keep it. Repent. And as you seek to work out your own salvation, you'll find that the reason why it's actually happening is because God is working to will and to do His good purpose in your life. And you won't come to a time of vibrancy in your life again and you'll say, man, I did it. Woohoo! You'll say, praise the Lord. Because I was a zombie. And for the person who's not a Christian, it is a helpful reminder, isn't it, that, that none of us can work our way into life. That Jesus has done all the work for us. That He has lived and died in our place, bearing our guilt, bearing our shame, bearing our sin on the cross. He took the death we deserve so we could receive new life which we could never earn. And he was raised on the third day, victorious over sin, victorious over death, victorious over hell, so that all who turn from their sin and trust in him are forgiven and have eternal life. And the fact is, when we read the Bible, you will find it's very clear, you will find life nowhere else. And so if you find that that's you, you're not a Christian, you've been working rather hard at becoming one, just hear this. Nobody works hard enough to become a Christian. We don't work ourselves up to God. He has come down to us. And so cast yourself on His mercy. Turn to Him in faith. Seek Him. And if you want to talk more about that, any member of this church would love to do that. You can just turn to somebody around you. You can come talk to me. But we must look to Jesus for life. We must seek new life, look to Jesus for life. And the other thing the church must do is realize what's at stake. The church must realize what's at stake. If they won't seek new life, if they won't repent, Jesus will come in judgment. Verse 3. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now the notion of Jesus coming as a thief most times speaks to His second coming, to the end. But here it does not. Because Jesus' return to make all things right, to judge the living and the dead, to establish His kingdom is not based on whether one church or another repents. Here he is talking about a particular temporal judgment that Jesus will bring. He will end the life of this local church if they won't seek new life in him. He will be against them. Friends, that is a truly terrifying thought. It's terrifying. But if they will seek new life, if they'll repent, He promises reward. So verse 5, the one who conquers, the one who perseveres, the one who heeds this word, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will be clothed thus, like the ones who are faithful, in white garments. And I will never blot out his name out of the book. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. They'll receive white garments. 
In the Roman culture, these would be the garments of victory. You know, at the Olympics, uh, unless the race was just then, uh, the people always put on the tracksuit, right? They, come, they get on the tracksuit in order to get, in, uh, get on the podium. They just put on different clothes and they stand there. Well, these are the clothes of victory. They're also the clothes, by the way, of those who have been saved by Jesus who are truly Christians, who persevere. Revelation 7.14 says about these people, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. If you do your own laundry, you know that that sounds ridiculous. White clothes don't come from washing them in blood. This is a picture of what it is. This is a picture of the fact that we are stained. We are the ones who are stained, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us so that we are as white as snow. We will have white garments. The one who conquers will have white garments. The one who conquers will have their names in the book of life. Now, this book refers to something that happened in every city. Every city had a registry, and when someone died, the name was taken out. They kept up with who's in the city and who's not. But Jesus' book of life is not those who inhabit a particular city on earth. It is those who inhabit the Heavenly city, their names will never be erased. Now beware, this phrase is not intended for you and I to walk away saying there are some names that Jesus will put in there and then he will blot out. What he is saying is there is no chance that this name is ever coming out because nobody else can blot it out. And Jesus is committed to not blot it out. So there's no danger for the one who conquers. That's good news. Our name one day will not be found on a list of residents in Indianapolis. But it will always be on the registry of the New Jerusalem. Because of Jesus. Thirdly, Jesus will claim us as His. I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. Look, on the last day of all the people you want calling your name and saying, that one's mine. You want Jesus saying that. And for those who conquer, for those who by faith live in Him, those who have trusted in Him, those who persevere in trusting in Him, those who He keeps to the very end, those who are held in His hand and nothing can snatch them out at the end, it's just as if Jesus would just say, you see this one? This one's mine. forever. White garments. Names in the book of life. Claimed by Jesus as His own. Is there any sweeter reward? Did you notice that He didn't say things will get better for you in this world if you conquer? He didn't say things will just turn around. You're going to be blowing the doors off here in Sardis. He says, whatever happens here, you can know what will happen there. And you'll be mine. And nothing will separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Every dying church must find new life 
or face its death. Jesus promised to build his church, yes. Jesus did not promise that every single local church will live forever. Every gathering will be there year after year after year after year after year. There are implications for every church, by the way, whether dying or not. But even those who'd say, well, our church isn't dying, we do have to remember that the Christians in Sardis probably didn't think their church was dying either. So I just want to mention six implications and maybe a seventh one. Very quickly. First, we, we must not fall asleep. We must not fall asleep. We must watch out for weakness, for sin, for deterioration, for the devil prowling among us, for anything that would hurt or kill our church. We must not fall asleep. We must strengthen one another. 1 Thessalonians 5 commands us to. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. We must strengthen one another. We must refuse to just do the right things. We must do the right things. We must do good works, but for the right reason, with the right heart, with hearts that want to glorify God. We must refuse to just do the right thing. We must not seek the approval of man. Now certainly there are things about our ministry and things that we do outside of these walls that will be loved, that some non-believer will say, well, that sounds like a good thing. I'm glad you're doing it. But there will also be things that are hated. Our refusal to compromise on the gospel. Our biblical view of morality, of sexual ethics, of preborn babies, of justice, of gender. There are not many in our community who are going to say, right on. You go to that McDonald's, they'll say, you stay away from there. Yeah, they do some okay things, but whew, they really are closed-minded. They only think that what the Bible says is how we ought to think. We must not seek the approval of man. We must keep a firm grip on the gospel. Look, brothers and sisters, Gray wrote, any step of ministry in our church or in the community that requires that we take a step away from the gospel is not truly Christian ministry. And it puts the life of our church, the real life, the spiritual life, at risk. And friends, we must pray. If we're not praying individually, corporately, if we're not seeking the Lord, we think we're okay, how it's going... I dare say it's a precursor to death. It's like saying, I don't need all this pesky oxygen. I don't need to breathe so much. I get along fine underwater for a while. One more, it's not on the list. We can't assume that what happened in Sardis could never happen to us. We must tremble knowing that it could, knowing that no church is immune. And so we must resolve to seek the Lord for life, for new life, for renewed life. 
as individuals, as a church, because to rephrase the main idea of this text, every church must nurture its life in Christ or face its death. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and we're going to pray in just a moment. Once we pray, the service will have ended and we will have our typical First Sunday uh, benevolence offering taken as you go out if you'd like to give to that. But for now, think about your own spiritual life as I think about mine. Are you lethargic? Are you alive? Are you satisfied so long as other people think you're alive? Are you asleep at the wheel? Are you anemic? Are you doing many right things, but that's half-hearted? Do you care more about what God says or about what man says? Are you prayerful? Our Father, we come before you and these are difficult words. These are hard words. They are sharp words. They pierce us. They remind us that our life is not, does not originate and is not sustained by us and our power and our efforts, but by you. It reminds us that we are called to persevere in the faith. Give us eyes to see ourselves clearly. Give us grace to wake up where we may be asleep, to be strengthened where we are weak, to remember the gospel where we have forgotten it, to keep it rather than leave it, and to repent rather than thinking Rebellion and apathy and lethargy are okay. Give us grace to overcome. Remind us of what awaits those who do. The white garments. A name that can never be blotted out. You, Lord Jesus, calling us your own. Life. We ask, Father, for our church, for Gray Road Baptist Church, that whatever it is that is our reputation in the community, that it will reflect 
the values of our Lord Jesus Christ, that it will reflect the teachings of Your Word. Make us wholehearted Christians, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.